Y'all, y'all want to uh, go to the polls and vote too? Yeah. We'll be on time. Yeah, you doing all right? Yeah, all right, all right. Take down my literature here. Come on, November 8th. November 8th, 1966. That's a long time ago. And then it's not. It's election day morning, the sun is shining, and the carpool train is going strong. Viola Bradford, that intrepid reporter you met in the last episode, spends the day riding around with Stokely Carmichael. Remember, he's the youngster from New York who came to Lowndes County, Alabama to learn learn how to organize, learn how to create change, revolutionary change. We went by this man's house. He was 85 years old and blind, sitting on his porch, ready for us to take him to the polls. He had never voted. His parents were slaves. And so we, all day long, that's what we did from pole to pole. Folks pull up to park in dirt lots outside the polling place. People pile out and join the line behind dozens and dozens of men and women, all of them waiting to vote. It was a beautiful day for voting here. Men and women from 21 years of age to at least 82 were waiting at different stations so that SNCC workers could come and pick them up. Many were voting for the first time in a general election. So LBJ. You may know him as President Lyndon B. Johnson. He signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965 more than a year before. But now it's being tested. America is being tested. Stokely Carmichael rode along the highways, down rugged dirt roads and through downtown areas. He would holler, did you vote right? (laughs) And the Negro voters would holler back, sure did. Lines at the poles stretched on and on and on. They wind down porch steps through dirt parking lots in and out of shady patches cast by the oak trees that are everywhere. In some of those lines, every single person is black. Every single one of them lined up to vote for the first time in their lives. Every single one of them risking their homes, their livelihoods, their very lives just to vote. Now, whites worked against this day for decades after slavery ended, through Reconstruction and into Jim Crow. They tried to keep Blacks powerless. Not anymore. But just who were Black folks there to vote for? I'm Roy S. Johnson. And I'm Eunice Elliott. And this is Panther, Episode 2. The long-anticipated Freedom March from Selma to Alabama's capital of Montgomery finally gets underway. If I died, I didn't care because I was dying for a purpose. We were afraid, but I guess the purpose was greater than the fear. This is Panther, Blueprint for Black Power, from Reckon Radio. This is the seldom-told story of one of the most famous and notorious organizations in the Black Power Movement and its origins in Lowndes County, Alabama. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? The one in Oakland started out, they heard about us. These people wanted to vote. They wanted to pull the lever for the Black Panther and then go on home. And this is what they did. Politicians have been trying to roll back the franchise all across the country. Voter ID, early voting, even the number of polling sites have all come under assault. 
When we last left you, Stokely Carmichael and SNCC, that's the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they had just arrived in Lowndes County. And they had seen a slew of Black folks brave enough to be seen watching and supporting that 54-mile march from Selma to Montgomery. That's the march that helped light a fire in Washington for the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And now they were back to find those same people in Lowndes and to organize them. But Eunice, what exactly was it that intrigued Stokely Carmichael, that kid from New York? Let's go back. Let's remember just how dangerous it was for Black people in Lowndes County in 1966. How dangerous it was just to exist. Forget voting or even registering to vote. Even though eight in every ten folks living in Lowndes were Black, those folks risked their lives just standing on the side of Highway 80. That act alone, that act of quiet defiance, was enough to pique Stokely Carmichael's interest. It was enough to tease out an idea, to plant seeds that would someday birth a powerful fruit. So Lowndes County had this history, right, being called Bloody Lowndes. That didn't just fall, like, out of the air. Lowndes County had this history of being a violent county in terms of of white supremacy and white terrorism in the county. That was Professor Regina Moore of Alabama State University. Now, although this was the 1960s, entitlement and supremacy, it still seeped from the dirt in Lowndes. I mean, the parents of many of these Black folks living there had been enslaved. I want you to think about that, Roy. Their parents. We're talking about mom and dad. Slaves. I just can't, Eunice. I just can't. It's too hard to think about. Let's just keep going. But think about this. That also means that the parents of many of their white neighbors, they owned slaves Mm. or they at Mm. least worked on plantations as hateful racist overseers. Mm -hmm. And so now in the 1960s, their children did any and everything they could to keep that same hate alive. We knew that you could find yourself in a river, in a creek, on a tree limb. You could find yourself dead in every one of the places, but here in particular because of the nature of the plantation ownership and how the law was pretty much within the hands of owners of plantations in Lowndes County. That's Joanne Mance, the widow of SNCC organizer and longtime Lowndes County activist Bob Mance. She breathed Lowndes County's activism. You have to be very careful because where you live will determine whether or not you live or die. Because a lot of people along this County Road 23 can tell you the, the number of times that their homes have been shot into. How they had to have people to guard every night because marauders would shoot into their living quarters. Some people could not work within this county because if they were associated with these Freedom Riders, or with SNCC, then they could lose everything that they had. So they had to give up a lot of things in order to register to vote. But that's a reputation that was true in a lot of places in the South. You know what? We should just take a quick step back here just so we can get a better sense of those states. Now, the part of the South that we're talking about is known as the Black Belt. And that's 
partially for the rich Black soil that makes the region so good for agriculture. Agriculture, Eunice, really? We're talking about cotton. (laughs) Cotton. Let's be real now, fam. Cotton. Okay, perhaps, perhaps. But it's also called the Black Belt because of all the Black folks who still call it home today. And that's a direct result of white plantation owners profiting off of enslaved Black labor to pick that cotton from that dirt that it's so good for. And when those plantation owners had to free their slaves, well, Roy, you could guess that it was not pretty. Mm -hmm. The years immediately after the end of the Civil War are known as Reconstruction. And in those years, when free Black folks and angry white folks were forced to coexist, Mm -mm. the federal Mm -hmm. troops were the only thing standing between them and violence. Those federal troops facilitated some progress. There was the opening of Black schools, even the election of Black public officials in some areas. But as soon as those troops pulled out, the ex-Confederates rolled right in. They seized power and rewrote state constitutions in places like Mississippi and Alabama to make sure Black people never gained power again. And they killed and terrorized anyone who tried to stop them, Eunice. Mm. So Reconstruction ended technically in 1877, Roy. But afterwards, at least 16 Black people were lynched. And I'm talking about just in Lowndes County. Keep in mind that others were jailed or even killed by police just on trumped up charges. Uh, No pun intended. (laughs) But countless others were beaten, brutalized, and just plain old dehumanized. And so now maybe you can understand why they call it Bloody Lounge. Mm -hmm. And you can see why in this community, the taste of freedom was savored just a little bit more than other places. Places that by now were probably taking some of their freedoms for granted. Freedoms that still struggle to exist in Lowndes County. Here's Regina Moore again. This particular area was almost like the hub of, like, Black activism for for this side of the county. If you look and trace, like, land ownership in in Lowndes County, you would notice that most white landowners were concentrated on the north side of Highway 80, while Black landowners were concentrated on the south side of Highway 80. But when you get here in Whitehall, you see that Black families pretty much occupy both sides of Highway 80. Whitehall is a town in Lowndes just about halfway between Selma and Montgomery. Black land ownership there translated into action. It is the only part of this stretch of Highway 80 where you have Black land ownership on both sides of the highway. So I think that helped this particular area become a safe space for activism because it wasn't so much of the threat and intimidation that you saw in other parts of the county. And I've heard stories, and I don't know the accuracy of those stories, but it traces back to the attempts of Black families to to actually acquire and own land during that period of Reconstruction. And so this was one of the areas where, where Black families were able to acquire land and pretty much hold on to it, as opposed to in some other parts of the county where they may have acquired land, but they lost it because of getting a loan or something from a bank and having their property foreclosed on. Highway 80 was a dividing line in a lot of places, but in Lowndes, it unified Black folks and it ignited Black activism. For too long, Black residents there contended with threats of physical violence for demanding even basic services like clean water. Forget muttering the word vote. Black areas of the county had pitiful roads, porous plumbing, conditions that were borderline inhumane, all courtesy of county government the white county government. 
Let Lillian McGill and Viola Bradford tell you about it. We want it better for our kids. I had gone off to school. I went to Selma University in Selma, then I went to Carver. And see, you, when you get off and you learn more, you want better. There was no plumbing. Had to use the outhouse. There was no electricity. She had uh, oil lamps and candles and a wooden fireplace. There's no, <laughs> I mean, who lives like that? Yeah, and this is 1966. Now, you think about it. These days, the mantra around that kind of treatment from those in power would be what? To vote them out. Well, that option wasn't even available to Black folks in mm. Lyons Roy. I mean, not in the 1960s. Not even close, Eunice. Even though Black men had legally been eligible to vote there since 1870. Black women since 1920. Yet there was not a single solitary Black registered voter in Lowndes County in the early 1960s. You're talking about people who have been miseducated or not educated, and you're working with people who are having to deal with all of these situations, trying to live, trying to exist, and moving through the Jim Crow period, trying to survive. Here we have Lowndes County, from what I can understand, is the second poorest county in the country. So you're talking about poor folks who are trying to register to vote. Somebody's telling them if you register to vote, you can change something. But in doing so, a lot of those folks are losing home, livelihood, and life. So you have to make a decision as to how it is that you're going to deal with this entire matter of trying to get these young folks that are telling you that registering to vote can get you this. But it also got me kicked off of a plantation that I, my generations I have lived all my life. And so what do I do once I'm kicked off? Where do I go? So I got to figure out how will I survive through this entire process? Exactly. I mean, this is the kind of nonsense that the Voting Rights Act was at least in theory, going to fix. Because voting, and even just registering to vote, it was not a simple process, at least not for Black folks. They had literacy tests that absolutely had nothing to do with literacy, poll taxes of just arbitrary amounts, and how about the jelly bean counts that obviously had nothing to do with anything and was just plain old-fashioned intimidation. Ed King was a teacher in Lowndes County back in the 1960s, and he experienced all three. When we first tried to get ready to vote, they was using that uh, literacy test. In other words, the only one that they were going to let vote was one that uh, would take that literacy test and pass, which would be a small number. I took it. I don't know whether I passed it or not, but the man that was uh, registering me was Mr. Golson. And he was teasing me. He said, uh, you one of the teachers in the county, and if you don't pass this test, I'm going to report you to the superintendent. <laughs> it kind of teased me off. And I told him, I said, Mr. Golson, I said, if I don't pass this test, I'll be back here every day that you all give the test until I pass it. But the next week, I got a letter set up there. So I don't know whether it did or not. Each literacy test would pretty much be different from the next one. You never knew exactly what literacy test questions you would be asked. How many bubbles are in a box of washing powder? How many seeds are in a watermelon? 
the questions, Joanne Mance remembers, make discrimination as plain as the Black Belt's dark earth. How many seeds in a watermelon? Really, Eunice? Mm. On top of that, whites closed everything down in the part of town where people could register. Closed it down in hopes Black folks would get too hungry, too thirsty, or just too worn out to stick around. And I'm sure anybody listening in Georgia might feel like that's just uh, a little familiar, huh? <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. Okay. But you know what? We'll come to that later on. But for now, let's get back to Lillian McGill. She had a hard time getting registered to vote, too. The days we went to register, the stores would close up and hang, but we couldn't even get a soda. The jailhouse was next door to where we registered. They wouldn't even let us get water out there from the faucet outside of the jail. They cut the water off. So we started fixing food, like you're going to take out to a church picnic. And everybody come in and start going to Montgomery or Selma, getting sodas and water and bringing it back and putting it in with ice. And then they would feed anybody coming by who wanted to register. And you stay all day. When you get there, you stay all day till the registration is over. The whole system was rigged. But the only way to change it, even more than a year after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, was in the voting booth. Hello, SNCC. But SNCC's field organizers weren't the first activists on the scene. More on that when Panther returns. Now, it's still important, though, to point out that SNCC wasn't really starting from scratch in Lowndes because... There were already folks there doing the work, and they were doing the work in face of possibly finding themselves hanging from a tree limb. It was that dangerous. And the laws, uh, they were pretty much useless. We were tired and sick and tired of being tired. So they decided then that they would get together and organize so they would have a unit rather than everybody trying to do something on its own. The white folks in power, they were pulling every trick in the book they could to keep Black Alabamians out. And Roy, you may or may not find this hard to believe, but the state of Alabama went so far as to ban the NAACP. (laughs) Very easy to believe, Eunice. Very easy to believe. If I was to choose a hero for the uh, movement here in Lyons County, it would be John Hewlett. Okay, Eunice, let's introduce our listeners to John Hewlett. Pastor Aaron McCall and Ed King, they remember him real well. He moved back here with his family a few years before the movement started. And he started talking to various people about doing something to change the political economy here in Lowndes County. And when Stokenham showed up, he was already working in the community, trying to get people registered to vote and stuff like that, because he had been a part of the Jefferson County Freedom Movement there in Birmingham. And so he brought those same ideas and stuff here. And they took on the establishment here. They decided they wanted to set up an organization in Lowndes County. And they named it the Lowndes County Christian Movement. It was organized at a a social club. It started with 27, but grew. The group went door to door. Lillian McGill vividly remembers working to recruit her neighbors. We had organized, but we would go around and talk about what we had planned and how we would do. There were people who didn't even want us at their house because they feared. There were people who 
feared that if you come to their house, that that job would be in jeopardy, that kids was in jeopardy. You were there for a lot of things. First place, you needed to get them registered, hopefully. Next place, you need to know if they had children. We wanted to integrate the school system. We wanted them to bring them out those one rooms. Cause see, they had a lot, lot of one room schools or one teachers in there. And she'd have 40 or 50 kids and she teaching six different grades with all the different classes. Well, you know, that's not gonna be right. They called themselves the Lowndes County Christian Movement. And groups like this popped up all around the state to get around the state's ban of the NAACP. And they also had a list of priorities. Simple things like more resources for schools, plumbing and electricity, more equitable living conditions. But the first step was them being able to just register to vote, being able to have a say in who would be making the decisions affecting their lives. So it's now March 1965. We've got a cadre of Blacks and Lounge beginning to advocate for themselves something that could cost them their lives. We've got SNCC, a national committee of organizers whose primary mission is to register and empower Black voters. For both groups, this next election is vital. Vital because it will test the realness of the Voting Rights Act. And it's possibly transformative, potentially changing the faces of elected officials in Lowndes County. Stokely Carmichael, SNCC's rising star, was all over that. Because locally, Carmichael came here to organize residents around the message of that all politics are local. Like, you can look at what's happening at the state level and the federal level, but if you really want to realize your full potential and your full power when it comes to politics, focus on your county government. He saw a particular route to improving living conditions for Black Southerners, and his message was to take over the county courthouse. And he had an idea of what that could look like. Now let's pan west to our neighbors in Mississippi. In April 1964, just about a year before the march to Montgomery, Black organizers in that state got similarly fed up with the racist BS. There, political power and white power slept in the same bed. Everybody else, they slept on the floor. The state's entire delegation to the Democratic National Convention was white. Let's just be real, Eunice. Mississippi Democrats were segregationists. Uh, Roy, as were most Southern Democrats in the 1960s. Yeah, you're right, you're right. George Wallace, he was a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, Mm -hmm. segregation forever. Yeah, that George Wallace. They were called Dixiecrats. Uh, As you can see, that was a nod to their Confederate roots. In Mississippi, SNCC tried something new. They founded the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, or MFDP. And it was a new political party, and it was open to everyone, regardless of race. And it was an effort to rally more Black voters to register, while also challenging the legitimacy of this all-white Democratic Party. In 1964, the MFDP sought recognition from the National Democratic Party at its convention in Atlantic City. I first uh, want to... Thank all of you, delegates to the Democratic National Convention, and the supporters of the Democratic Party. The MFDP wanted recognition of the new party itself, but also of the racist and exclusionary practices of the traditional Democratic Party in Mississippi. Now, one of the main voices behind this push was Fannie Lou Hamer. You know her name, even if you don't know exactly why. 
Fannie Lou was born and raised in the Mississippi Delta. When SNCC came to the Delta in the early 1960s, she attended one of their meetings. She was just curious. Here's Terry Cannon, one of SNCC's few white field secretaries at that time. I mean, Fannie Lou Hamer didn't know that Black people had the right to vote when SNCC first got in contact with her. She thought it was illegal or something. So after she learned that she was able to vote, oh, Fannie Lou registered as soon as she could. Uh, But then she was thrown out of house and home, Mm, off mm. the plantation she had lived and worked on for 18 years. She was beaten. And Roy, she was involuntarily sterilized. Man. All of this just because she tried to access the ballot box. Now, her notoriety, the reason why you have heard her name, is because of her subsequent work with SNCC work for which she was arrested and beaten. Violence, she turned into a powerful demand for change, the kind of change Stokely Carmichael wanted to see in America. She and others made the trek to New Jersey to the Democratic National Convention, and she implored the white delegates there to stand with them and to reject Dixiecrat racism. I question America. Is this America? The land of the free and the home of the brave. Where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Thank you. Unfortunately, Eunice, that powerful speech just didn't work. The all-white Mississippi delegation was allowed to stand. That was such a depressing, terrible defeat and demoralizing to many people. It was really the recognition that the Black liberation movement could no longer depend on white liberals for its support. This happened as Stokely began to rise within SNCC. Now, Roy, this sounds to me like a moment of reckoning, or maybe it was a moment of realization. Because think about it, the system was not broken. It actually was working exactly as it was intended to, to keep Black folks out of power and out of the voting booths. So they couldn't vote for their own, for our own. Boom, Eunice, you nailed it. For Stokely, what happened in New Jersey clinched it. So yes, thank God for Mississippi. Mm. It helped one young organizer realize that relying on white folks and their systems for change was fruitless. He wanted Blacks to build their own systems, to create their own change. And I think I would be remiss as a professor at an HBCU to not mention the HBCU legacy um, that influenced his work here in, in Lowndes County because We know SNCC was started at Shaw University, a historically black college, started by Ella Baker. And Stokely Carmichael was a graduate of Howard University. So I think that the education that he got at Howard, we saw that manifest in his organizing practices in Lowndes County, but he perfected what he learned in the classroom. So he had like the educational or the institutional background, but he got the practical experience on the grounds here in Lowndes. They knew that Marching and praying and uh, sitting in was dead. And appealing to the white liberals, appealing to the federal government, appealing to the FBI, none of that 
had helped and as a matter of fact it had in great part harmed and held down SNCC. Now this was the beginning of some tension within SNCC because not everyone in the organization saw what Stokely saw. And you also have to remember that John Lewis was SNCC's president and he was a strict adherent to the principle of nonviolence, just like his mentor, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But Stokely Carmichael, he was about results by whatever it took, by whatever worked. And nonviolent efforts to change the Democratic Party, uh, they weren't working at all. John Lewis was also at the time pushing Black voters to vote for the Democratic Party. So you were starting to see a little bit of div- divide within the leaders of SNCC, particularly in the in the path that John Lewis wanted the organization to take and the path that Stokely Carmichael wanted the organization to take. This is where Stokely was when he and a few other SNCC organizers set up in Lounge just after the march to Montgomery. Ed King and Lillian McGill were there. So let's let them set the scene. They came in uh, during the time we was trying to get the Johnstown uh, Christian movement started. I'm going to remember, Stokely Carmichael came in here the following week. He and Bob Mance and Scotty B and some others, because they came in here. And the Freedom House is right down there on that road. And that's where the sneak worker stayed. And SNCC's work throughout the county was not top-down. They were there to provide the connective tissue for true grassroots organizing, but it was bottom-up organizing. So once you've gone in, you've had freedom schools, you've talked to everybody, you've discovered people like Fannie Lou Hamer or John Hewlett, and then you, you're not there to set up the SNCC party or the SNCC government. You're there to get things rolling, and it required an involved trust in the local people also. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 passed just a few months after SNCC arrived and the Lowndes County Christian Movement got off the ground. That painted change in broad, broad strokes. You have these these people who are now finally able to register to vote, even though uh, we had the Voting Rights Act, and so, there are these discussions about, okay, now that we can vote, like, who do we vote for? And so you have these discussions about, well, LBJ, he's a Democrat. But then you also have the SNCC organizers who are constantly reminding voters, like, yeah, LBJ is a Democrat. So is Bull Connor. So is the sheriff here in Lowndes County. So it's like, yeah, they're Democrats, but are you sure that this is the party that you want to vote for and align yourself with, right? And so there's this idea of of how do we fully realize the power of Black vote? And we can't do that if we align ourselves with the Democratic Party in Alabama, which is still the party of white supremacy. So the only viable alternative for for voters here in Lowndes County was, you know, we're going to start our own political party. We're going to see how that works out. That's next time on Panther. I can't wait, Eunice. See you there. I mean, think about what the the Panther represents, you know. Number one, he is sleek, precision. He's strong and he's fierce. And then he was black and we black and he represented us, you know. For us, it represented freedom. It represented freedom.
Panther is produced by Reckon Radio in partnership with Pod People. It's hosted by me, Roy S. Johnson. And me, Eunice Elliott. Our executive producer is John Hammondry with additional writing, reporting, and production for Reckon by Isaiah Murtaugh, Sarah Weitz-Kodischek, and R.L. Nave. Special thanks to Kelly Scott, Katie Johnson, Minda Honey, Abby Crane, and Tom Bates. And at Pod People, Ann Fuse, Alec McManus, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Ashton Carter, Rebecca Chasson, John Asante, and Carter Wogan. Our theme music is composed by Jelani Akil Bowman. Head to Reckon.News to learn more about the events featured in today's episode. And please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts.